Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. In part one, we laid out some of the psychological and philosophical aspects from 100 to 1 in the stock market. This segment will focus more on how the big gains are made, according to Thomas Phelps. Keep in mind that this is not meant to substitute reading the book, as I have selected only certain parts of it for this discussion. Phelps wrote that it is important to have a sense of values and ability to figure the odds. He wrote that all successful investing is based on foresight. But foresight alone is not enough. The other essential ingredient is a sense of values. Many correctly foresee the future, but then suffer by overpaying. For example, it will not profit someone to predict a tripling in earnings if the current share price is high enough such that it more than bakes in that expectation. So it is possible to understand all the analytical tools and be sophisticated without having a good intuitive sense of when a company is trading at a cheap or expensive valuation. Connected with this thought is his statement that a wise investor makes the big bets when the odds are heavily in one's favor by seeing favorable probabilities that are greater than generally appreciated or finding stocks priced at levels which discount rather fully the unfavorable probabilities apparent to all. In the first instance, the buyer simply recognizes a value that others do not see. In the second case, the buyer says in effect, since the price of the stock already is discounting the worst that can be seen for it, there is no downside risk. Wise investors do not buy a stock just because it is going up or is expected to go up. Wise investors buy because they foresee an increase in earnings and dividends that will make today's price look cheap in years to come. Before we get into the pointers on what to look for in the big winners, we should quickly go over some of the math related to compounding as described in the book. Increasing 100-fold over 40 years requires a stock's price to compound at 12.2% annually. Achieving the 100-bagger over a much shorter time frame, say 15 years, pushes the required compound annual rate to a much higher rate of 36%. It follows that if we are looking for stocks that might multiply by 100 in the next 15 to 40 years, we must estimate the chances that their earnings will continue to grow at compound rates of 12% to 36%, all else being equal. In other words, long-term capital appreciation is directly tied to long-term earnings growth. And the only way to get around that is to catch swings in market sentiment, or put another way, sell at a higher multiple of earnings later on. But even during a long stretch of overall impressive gains, investors must understand that results can appear otherwise for years at a time. The investment industry is so fastened to measuring performance quarterly that many would lose patience if a stock acted badly for more than a year or two. Phelps highlights Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company. Pfizer lagged the Dow Jones for most of the 10 years between 1946 to 1956. Most investors would not have had the patience to let such a dog sit in the portfolio. After all, hindsight would have said it was possible to sell the stock and just buy it back in 1956. However, anyone who bought the stock in 1942 would have multiplied the original investment by 141 times if held until Phelps' book was written in 1972, despite the highs and lows. Phelps points out that the nature of compounding is such that most dollar gains are earned in the later years. At a 15% return, 33 years is required for $1 to grow into $100. But it's not until around the halfway point, between 16 to 17 years, that we reach the $10 point. 
meaning that about 90% of the dollar gains is achieved in the latter half. And 50% of the gains is seen only in the final five years out of the 33 years. As humans, we are wired to think of patterns in linear terms rather than exponential, and that may partially explain why we are tempted to realize small gains. For a taxable account, substituting one stock for another requires the new idea to be much better if the old idea is being sold for a big gain. That's because each profit taken via a sale triggers a capital gains tax. To turn $10,000 into $1 million, assuming 20% of each gain is lost to taxes and commissions, someone selling out at each double and investing into something else would need 7 consecutive doubles and then a gross profit of 79% on the 8th trade to reach $1 million. The investor who buys and holds on needs the same stock to double only 6.5 times. The trader believes he can make a series of quick decisions in a world that is fast-changing, and with limited visibility rather than trying to determine which companies will do well for the next 20 years. The investor dedicated to buying right and holding on picks management, products, and processes that he thinks will be able to cope with the unforeseeable. Where to look for the big winners? Phelps points out four categories of 100 to 1 stocks. An advance primarily due to recovery from extremely depressed prices at the bottom of a great bear market and special panic or distress situations. Natural resource discoveries like a gold deposit or a spike in commodity price due to a change in supply-demand for a commodity. Great leverage and capital structure, borrowing money more cheaply than the return earned on putting it to work. Reinvesting earnings at high rates of return on invested capital for an extended time period. Reinvestment would include investing in internal organic growth, repurchasing shares, or buying other companies at lower price-to-earnings ratios. This is a kind of arbitrage in that it means increasing the share count of the buyer by a lower percentage than the increase in earnings, thereby leading to an immediately higher earnings per share number. This fourth category would in today's language be called compounders. Phelps explains that even though investors and compounders have simple arithmetic and time on their side, there is no free lunch, no sure thing. The high rates of return on invested capital may attract too many competitors, and no business is so good that it can't be spoiled if too many get into it. It is vitally important, explains Phelps, that the return is protected by a gate, making entry into the business difficult if not impossible. Today, we would use the terms barriers to entry or moats to capture that idea. Phelps points out that thousands of investors have owned what he calls high-gate stocks, but rarely will one hold on until the price increases by 100 times. A point repeated many times in the book is that the price-to-earnings ratio at the time you buy is highly important. The movement in a share price can be broken down into two basic factors. The change in the price-to-earnings ratio multiplied by the change in earnings. It is intuitive to think that a company's value has doubled if its net income doubles. After all, its earnings are now double what they used to be and so then should the value of the company. But Phelps points out that in order to achieve a 100 times gain, net income would have to increase by 100 times if we held the P.E. ratio constant. In many of the 100 baggers he reviewed, there was great help from the price-to-earnings ratio expanding from a lower initial point. For example, if the P.E. ratio increases from 5 times to 20 times, the share price quadruples before even considering any increase to earnings. It also means your stock's earnings need to rise by only 25 times your starting point instead of 100 times to reach a 100 bagger. So when you position yourself to benefit from both multiple expansion and earnings growth, the two compound against each other. But the math can also work nastily in reverse. If instead you buy at 40 times earnings and the market later drives it down to 20 times earnings, your starting level of earnings must then increase 100% to arrive back at the starting point.
A key attribute espoused by Phelps in seeking 100 to 1 stocks is a high return on invested capital. According to Phelps, time is on the side of companies with a high return on invested capital and high growth. Time marches on and corrects for errors made in the original purchase price. Charlie Munger has made a similar comment in that held for long enough, a stock's return should approach the return on capital, even if one initially paid a lofty price. Phelps said the secret of success is to focus on earnings power rather than stock price movements. There are two key ingredients for determining the sustainability of growth. One, how high is the gate against competition? The rate of return on reinvestment is bound to be whittled down if others can enter easily. And two, what is the runway for sales growth to benefit from reinvesting earnings? Plowing back earnings into the business will not result in growth if existing capacity is already enough to serve all markets. Of the several examples of 100 baggers that Phelps walks through in the book, I will highlight two. The first is Masco Screw Products. The stock was available for less than three times earnings in 1961 and traded as high as 38 times in 1969. Just the advance in the P.E. ratio would have raised the price 14-fold if earnings hadn't increased at all. But earnings did grow rapidly, and the key point is that with a huge tailwind from the price-to-earnings ratio expanding by 14-fold, earnings had to grow by only 7 times over the same period to arrive at a 100-bagger. 7 times 14 equals 98 times, or almost 100. But then one will naturally say, that's all hindsight. As Phelps illustrates in the case of Masco, that's not true. It is a fact that Masco traded at under three times earnings. That was just a matter of dividing the price by reported earnings per share. But he then lays out a table showing that in the five years leading up to 1961, the profitability of the company had grown quickly. Book value per share had increased 41%, and return on invested capital went up to 15.1% from 1.7%, and still, somehow, it traded at such a low valuation. So those facts were obtainable and visible before the 100-fold increase happened. But what needed to play out to get the investment result, and what did play out, was continued growth in Masco's earnings for the next several years. The return on equity reached a high of near 30% five years later in 1965, meaning that earnings that were retained and reinvested earned a high rate of return. Behind the change in profitability was the fact that Masco launched a successful single-handle faucet that grew to become the primary source of revenue. That would have been difficult to foresee, but limiting purchases to stocks with price-to-earnings ratios below a specific bar is the part that is within one's control. I think it is important to note here, though, that it's not so much that it's key to buy stocks at a low P.E. ratio. Three times implies a 33% earnings yield, and you usually only see situations like that happen during a severe market panic, which doesn't happen often. But the main point Phelps is making is that the arithmetic and odds of leading to such a big advance as a 100-bagger are much better when both levers are working in your favor. Buy in at a low PE multiple and ride the stock until it trades for much higher, compounded against earnings that grow. To put it another way, a combination of buying a company that has a long runway of high earnings growth, together with a very cheap trading multiple, can be a dynamite combination. In many of Phelps' examples, the 100-bagger is achieved in part by the trading multiple going from clearly cheap in the beginning to clearly lofty at the end, and he provides no opinion as to whether the end of price was overvalued. Take ADP, or Automatic Data Processing, a company still publicly traded today. It was a 100-bagger from 1965 to 1971. The breakdown in the math was as follows. 
The 100-fold increase from $7 to $704 over the six years was attributable to 1. The P.E. ratio going from 12.5 times to 90 times. That is 7-fold right there. Earnings grew 14 times. Multiply the two together and you have a 100-bagger. Now, if for whatever reason the P.E. ratio stayed at 12.5 times in 1971, our return without considering the dividend would have aligned exactly with the growth in earnings, which was 14 times. Still an incredible return, but clearly far lower than 100 times. On growth investing, Phelps shares a somewhat similar sentiment as that expressed by Warren Buffett, who has written that the effort to distinguish between growth and value investing is counterproductive since growth is really a key component of the value calculation. According to Phelps, money is made by buying anything that is going to be worth more in the future than one has to pay for it now. The only way to make more than the going rate of return on your capital is to buy values not apparent to most people at the time you buy. Phelps laid out the three big ifs that must be upheld for a so-called growth stock to do well in the long run, but it really applies to most situations. Growth stocks are highly attractive if they continue to grow as fast as or faster than they have been growing, and if buyers continue to expect them to grow as fast or faster, and if the rate at which future earnings and dividends must be discounted does not increase materially. Those are three big ifs, as investors were reminded in May of 1970 when bond yields rose to historic highs and growth stocks collapsed. Netflix is a prime example of how the share price can collapse if the three ifs work against an investor, because 1. Its subscriber growth abruptly slowed down, 2. Investors realized its total addressable market, or TAM, was smaller than expected, and thus the expectations for growth slowed, and coupled with a period of rising interest rates, that inevitably led to 3. The discount rate applied to its earnings hiking up, or the multiple assigned to its earnings being sharply reduced. The share price declined by 75% from its high in October of 2021 over the next eight months. Phelps cautions against overpaying up front for future growth with two thoughts. There seems to be a law against limitless growth. Beyond a point, people simply won't tolerate any more, whether the growth is in business, church, or state. And secondly, when you pay in advance for earnings of a company to triple or quadruple, as you do when buying it at a price-to-earnings ratio that is three to four times that of the index, you must think ahead and foresee what multiple is deserving at the end of the high-growth period. This means evaluating the competitive status of the company as it will be six to eight years in the future after it has achieved the growth you expect. As a final thought, despite his teachings on the numerical realities in investing, Phelps acknowledged the importance of being able to weigh the unquantifiable and having the ability to see what is not there but will soon enough matter. He stated that when any rule or formula becomes a substitute for thought rather than an aid to thinking, it is dangerous and should be discarded. The greatest advantage of all in buying top quality stocks without visible ceilings to their growth gives us the chance to profit from the unseen and incalculable. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please like and share. Questions can be sent to podcast at starvinecapital.com. Lastly, thank you for the reviews on Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered.